Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. Today's guest is Helen Lewis, staff writer for The Atlantic, formerly of The New Statesman and host of the fantastic BBC Sounds podcast, The New Gurus. I'll put a link to that and to all of Helen's work in the blurb. Um, The podcast is amazing. It's exactly the sort of thing. If you're into, it's basically a little bit of Louis Theroux, but that really doesn't do it justice. But great stories, well told, and a real focus on effectively cults and what makes them and individuals and but also it, there's something that's very sweet about some of the people involved so it's just a really it's just a brilliant if you're looking as i'm sure you often are for just a highly bingeable podcast um then oh man it, it's just great uh, so i hope there's more of it uh because i could listen to that i mean it's just the problem is with it it's so good you just binge it you I listen to it in two days and then i'm like well okay now i'm on the hunt for a new podcast again but i guess that's life um but many of you will know Helen Lewis, of course, um, one of the best uh, journalists in the country, uh, a phenomenal writer from a, a centre-left perspective, and someone who has a very clear take on what's happened on the British left in the last few years, and also um, some really interesting stuff about the uh, sex and gender debate. So uh, this is wide-ranging, it's great, and also, if you're familiar with Helen, you'll know what a talented writer she is. It's not surprising she's also a brilliant talker and this is just uh, an hour or a little bit more uh, in the company of a, of a highly articulate, very thoughtful person. And it's just so good engaging with people who can, you know, have done all the thinking and can talk about it in, in such a brilliant way. Uh, before um, you have the treat uh, of this interview, I can announce some future guests for the live shows. So uh, the show is now booked until mid-April and here is the full lineup until then. And oh boy. I, I mean, there's been a couple that have been, have been close to being able to confirm, but haven't been able to. So now I can fully confirm the guests for the next six shows. On the 23rd of January, my guests are Emily Maitlis and John Sopel. Uh, that show has sold out. On Monday, the 6th of February, I can now announce that my guest is Ian Blackford, the former leader of the SNP in Westminster. Now, he led the SNP group in Westminster for five years, was obviously a staple of Prime Minister's questions, a leading member of the independence movement, a close ally of Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, and if you follow politics, I'm sure you do. If you listen to this podcast, you'll be aware that there have been some changes uh, in the leadership of the Westminster group. So that will be, I mean, apart from anything else, I love talking to people who've done PMQs on the reg. Do you know what I mean? People have done it all the time. Angus Robertson was a great guest. And anyone who's, I think, find it really interesting, particularly with the third parties, because then they get two questions, how they maximise the impact of that. Uh, and obviously, Promises Questions now a different thing without Ian Blackford there. Uh, and he's had a long career. And um, there's obviously so much to talk to him about. So that I'm really excited about. The Monday, the 6th of February, Ian Blackford. On Monday, the 20th of February, uh, talking to PMQs, my guest is Keir Starmer. 
that show has now sold out. On Monday the 6th of March, my guest is Eddie Izzard, who won't surprise you to hear. I mean, in the 90s. I mean, Dressed to Kill was probably the stand-up video that I watched more than any other. Um, such a gifted comedian and, of course, Labour activist uh, and uh, is currently, well, may well stand at the next election for uh, for the Labour Party for Parliament. Uh, on Monday the 20th of March, I can now reveal that my guest will be Krishnan Guru Murthy, uh, one of the most gifted broadcasters in the country, a really funny guy, and uh, that will be a very, very special night. Um, so that's Monday the 20th of March with Krishnan Guru Murthy. And on Monday the 3rd of April, my guest is the former leader of the the Scottish Conservatives, Ruth Davidson. Ruth is one of the most charismatic uh, politicians in the country. She's former leader of the uh, Scottish Tories. She's now in the House of Lords. Is always just such good fun and engages in such a, a, a brilliant way. Um, but what an amazing run of guests, all different parties, all different perspectives. Uh, so book your tickets now. Uh, and obviously these shows have started to sell out now, which is great, but it does mean book your tickets early because... Um, uh, Yes, because it might sell out and then you don't get to see it. But um, always follow my Twitter feed at Matt Ford and always check the NIMAX website um, where the political party tickets are because sometimes they're announced there before they're announced on here because uh, obviously I put them up as soon as I can and then I let you know as soon as I can um, on the podcast. So hopefully I will see what some of those. And now on with today's show with Helen Lewis, who is just such a gifted uh, writer, a brilliant talker and... Uh, this is this is a real treat. Enjoy. Delighted to be joined by Helen Lewis, who many of you will know from the New Statesman, the Atlantic, maybe the Daily Mail. If uh, if people were a fan in the early days, you made your name really in uh, in the world of British left wing journalism. I guess at the New Statesman, and you hosted podcasts and wrote brilliant articles. And now you're at the Atlantic over in America. So why do you leave us? Why do you hate our way of life? Well, I still am based in London, so I haven't left entirely. And I have essentially become the Atlantic's royal correspondent, which was not a job that I applied for or uh, I wanted. But I had to accept that I do have an upsetting. You know how like men feel about World War II? That's how I feel about royal history. I just know an exceptionally large amount of random trivia that is completely useless in my daily life about it. Um, so, I, yeah, I've, I still have one foot back in, in Britain. But um, I don't you know. I wrote about Liz Truss being outlasted by the lettuce and stuff like that. But I, I, I OK, well, I try to give you my real confession, which is that I was very grateful after the period of Brexit and Corbyn to take a bit of a breather from writing about UK um, political journalism. It was not the most fun period to be a political journalist, shall we say. You'll have to forgive me that. I thought you'd like move to America. No. Oh, no, great. No, no. So you do like us. <laughs> I do. You do like I do your country like of birth. No, but I, I have been I've been just been reporting in um, Florida over this winter and I was reporting in New York last year. So I do get to spend quite a lot of time in the States, which is nice because then you come home and you realise that Britain's problems, though very real, are sort of less grotesque and kind of insane than America's problems. They're just sort of a bit more homespun and parochial. Uh, yeah. You've also done a phenomenal series on BBC Sounds called The New Gurus, which I really want to talk about in detail because... I, I like everyone, you're always on the lookout for a new podcast that you just want to it, almost listen to every episode in a day. And I think it's the most bingeable podcast I've ever found in years. It, I, I, I was disappointed. There were only about eight episodes or something. There's eight episodes, eight half-hour episodes, which, you know, Matt. given that some of the length of some of the podcasts I listen to, I know people who manage to do a single podcast episode that lasts longer than that. <laughs> it's so good. Um, but just before we come on to that then, 
How would it differ and how does it differ um, working for the Atlantic rather than working for the New Statesman? Well, the NS was a very small team. It's since had a big expansion, actually, since I, after I left. But it did always feel like it was amazing that we were producing this magazine that had such ambition when it was like, I, I think I want to describe it as like 12 of us in a shed. Um, and the nicest thing about it, the reason that I joined it, as you say, from the mail where I'd been a sub-editor and on the features desk, was that I wanted to work somewhere that wasn't such a huge kind of juggernaut of bureaucracy where, you know, the mail, if you wanted to write a headline on a, a completely harmless piece about like, dogs dressed up as harry potter characters it would be the so subject of like three hours of various men all an extraordinarily large going like dog warts you know like and, and then sort of workshopping it when and i remember turning up at the new statesman and just writing a headline on something showing it to jason the editor and he was like oh yeah that's quite good yeah we'll do that and i was like but where are the three hours of like us arguing about this um and the same thing happened with setting up the podcast which you mentioned with stephen bush um we just sort of did it. We bought a microphone and we sat in a room and, and we did it. Um, so there was a great level of freedom to do it, to doing that. So that's what I, I loved about it. But the, th the thing that's very luxurious about the Atlantic is, um, particularly doing print magazine journalism for them, is the luxury of time and resources. Um, you know, it's a, it's a much bigger staff and I'm a very small cog in that machine. Um, I'd, I now don't have any editorial responsibilities. I do feel a bit like Kevin Spacey in American Beauty. You know, when he goes to apply to the faux McDonald's, he's like, I want the job with the least amount of responsibility possible. Yeah. That's um, that's my great pleasure at The Atlantic is that I do. I just roam around talking to people and reading things and writing stuff down, which is like the journalistic dream as far as I'm concerned. So it's not just that you were kind of, intellectually exhausted by Brexit and Corbyn. It was also just the the, the style of journalism you, you wanted a break from. You, you wanted to do sort of pieces that you had more time to consider and, and, and spend time on. Yeah, I think I felt that I was in danger, particularly with writing a weekly column, of, of beginning to repeat myself. And I think the worst thing about that Brexit period, when the legislation just got stuck, you will remember this yeah. well, right? And you just had all this stuff that seemed incredibly dramatic at the time. Like, oh, it's a late night sitting. Oh my God, it's 1am. Oh, you know, people are brawling in the division lobbies, which was all very high drama as, as it happened. And then you stuck, like, took a step back and you went, well, hang on, what's actually changed here? And also the thing that became really dispiriting was the huge opportunity cost of it in the sense that, and I think you're really seeing this now, all the things that didn't get addressed because Parliament was just grinding through this one huge topic for years, you know, I think, although, you know, the, obviously the COVID pandemic has hugely affected um, the NHS, for example, the fact that it had just been languishing all the way through that period cannot have helped it. Um, you know, all of these prisons are in a ridiculously bad state. And, you know, there have been nine billion different prisons ministers, justice ministers in the last kind of five years. All this other stuff just got completely neglected as far as I was concerned, because everyone was so obsessed with Brexit. And I found that really, really dispiriting. So what year did you join the New Statesman? 2010, December 2010. Wow. So just OK. After, just after uh, uh, Gordon uh, Brown left Downing Street. Yeah. So I basically I from... I've I only ever ever been a political journalist under a conservative government, despite being for now very elderly. You're not elderly. You're thirty nine. You're older. You're older than I am, right? So I am, uh, yeah, I, but only I, by like, I mean less than a yeah. year, but still, but still, yeah. <laughs> if you're elderly, I can't. I can't Us engage. Geriatric with the fact millennials have just got to accept that you know <laughs> we're middle aged now. It's fine. So you join in 2010. Labour had obviously lost. You've got a coalition government. Ed Miliband's leading the Labour Party. Yeah. Uh, you know, around that time, people in Labour circles thought he was going to win the next election. 
Did they though? Because I remember the whole thing about the 35% strategy and the feeling was how he could possibly, yeah, win the next election by just sort of squeaking over the line. Um, And, you know, I just felt like there was still a lot of stuff that had to go through a kind of like a sort of washing machine. It had to just go through the full cycle of people just reckoning with it, particularly over Iraq tuition fees and all this stuff. It was still a big deal then that the fact that, um, Ed Miliband hadn't been in Parliament and therefore hadn't had to be whipped and voted for the Iraq War. Um, you know, and I, the, the party just needed to have that kind of argument amongst itself for a while and get through it, I, I felt. It wasn't ready to come back into government, really. Um, and it was it was dispiriting, really, because no one loved Ed Miliband, really. I don't think in the country, certainly. The, the, I mean, the polling bears that out. But within the party either, there wasn't a kind of great wave of enthusiasm. Whereas there actually, there actually genuinely was for Jeremy Corbyn. People really did feel, let's give proper proper being left wing and stop being apologetic about it a really good go. Um, but because I didn't, I wasn't someone who felt that particular enthusiasm, that made me feel even further alienated because it was like a load of other people were having a massive party and you were standing in the kitchen going, it's a bit loud, isn't it? <laughs> um, and it's rubbish. And, well, yeah, <laughs> and and I don't think anyone, else, you know, I don't think the neighbours are going to like this, um, you know, and but but feeling like a real sort of party people, where other, when at the time when other people were having the absolute time of their lives and they were really excited, um, and you know, I think that's the function. I always think the function of journalism is to be the boy going. That emperor doesn't have any clothes on, so it's a it's a feeling that you should get used to, not feeling enthusiasms that other people feel and having to deal with the blowback of that. But that was a particularly harsh and horrible time I think because other people felt so excited and they didn't want other people to burst their bubble and you know I felt compelled to say I don't I don't buy it I don't think it's going to work and I don't think enough people are going to like it was that an issue internally at the new statesman were, were some people there taken with Corbynism yeah I mean there was a good I would say a healthy level of internal debate but what Jason Cowley the editor did right from the start was said we're a journalistic project his kind of catchwords were always sceptical and plural, right? So we don't, we're not a Labour Party magazine. We are primarily, a, you know, a, a, an intellectual space where all of this stuff gets debated. So yeah, there, there were people who supported Corbyn on the staff and people who didn't. You didn't get a kind of veto of the fact that I'm the properly left-wing one, so I my my my, my word should be law. And we had, good, you know, we had the, the smarter people around that project right for us, like Paul Mason, during that time. And I think there was lots of that project that was good and interesting right there was a, a real feeling that actually Miliband's Labour and had kind of conceded everything and particularly under the economic policy under Ed Balls had essentially conceded that the Tories were right on the, their fundamental analysis of the economy and where it should be and so I always found John McDonnell the more interesting part of that that project um, because not just because of his economic policies but also because he was hungry and he really wanted it he was he got up every morning and thought how he could usher in socialism and I you know and I, res- I respect that right he was in politics for power which is what politics is for so there was an awful lot of energy but yeah we didn't have the kind of massive internal schisms that somewhere like the, the Guardian did because from the very start we had, the law had been laid down and the same thing happened you know the same thing is true of the Atlantic which has writers, you know, it has some people who are Republicans in it and some people who are very much on the kind of liberal left, some people who are in the contrarian space or whatever. Um, but we were always, have, you know, from day one told that you're you're here to do, to do journalism and here to... The, the thing they told me when I started The Atlantic, which I think is a very good way of framing this, is you should address the best version of your opponent's argument. And, like, if that law were enforced on Twitter, you know, it would bring, like, so 90% of dunkings to an instant <laughs> end, right, where you just... 
you what you actually have to do is take someone really seriously and and then you know <laughs> and then take your machete to their argument right rather than picking like cherry rather than not picking right the version of cherry picking where you find the most bonkers exponent of a political theory and you look at them and you laugh at them that is a really good just rule for life i think and and engaging with other people online or off but but with the new statesman then because it, I mean, I guess it, the same applies to the Guardian. Though you're right that it was more severe at the Guardian. But did the rise of Corbyn also at the right at the same time as the rise of some new media like Navarra and stuff like that represent not just an existential threat to the new statesman, but in a because of like it was a you know different medium, but also were they sort of grabbing part of their audience? We were going actually that's the harder, punkier stuff. We prefer that rather than you know flicking through something that's out of the date by the time you get it and maybe more timid than the sorts of things that Aaron Bastani or, or Owen Jones might say. I'm sure there were readers like you sort of who preferred a, a stronger ale. Um and but there were equally well there were more people who were like, why is everybody suddenly so angry? You know, and and actually really appreciated that. But we did have it we had an enormous expansion of the website um from sort of twenty thirteen onwards. That's what, what I was involved with doing, including several redesigns. And then we moved to this idea of having a kind of all-in-one subscription, which was, I think, absolutely game-changing because it makes, you know, it makes it means that you are kind of platform neutral in the sense that we would then commission stuff for the magazine, but we wouldn't be we wouldn't be holding it back for online. You can sell it as a kind of a bundle and you support the product. So I think it, the New Statesman navigated that choppy period quite well. But also, I think that the, for all that they obviously delighted in using me as a punching bag, as I'm sure they did you, I think that alt-left media space was ultimately good and healthy. And it should have, you know, one of the things that is a real problem, and I see this much more in America, is there is a whole hermetically sealed alt-right, and I mean that in the alternative sense, not necessarily in the kind of fascist sense, but alternative media ecosystem, which is like OAA, OANN News, Breitbart, Fox, the Daily Wire, The Daily Caller, uh, Drudge, you know, uh, just an extraordinary plethora of, and then before we even get to like individual creators on channels like Rumble and Ga uh, Getter and Gab and all of this infrastructure that has been built over the last 10 years about online right-wing media that is outside the mainstream is extraordinarily powerful. It has this incredible ability to create narratives and memes. You know, it's where the fact that everybody will kind of say, Hunter Biden's laptop. And that's sort of taken as, you know, you don't need to know what was on Hunter Biden's laptop because <gasps> Hunter Biden's laptop. You don't hear about Hunter Biden's laptop much in the mainstream media, do you? Mm. Um, you know, and and the left could really, although it would make my job harder, could really do with developing a not a parallel of that because lots of that space is incredibly fact-averse, conspiracist, nasty, harasses people. But a much bigger, healthier left-wing media ecosystem would definitely make things easier for left-wing politicians. I felt this very strongly about Brexit. I always had this theory that David Cameron got completely blindsided by the fact that he was going into Brexit not as the leader of the Tory party, but as the leader of Remain. And he was like, well, where are my lovely headlines? Where is the <laughs> default assumption that everything that I'm doing is great? And you talk to people on the left, like Gordon Brown and Alan Johnson, and they sort of felt the same way, that actually had that campaign been led by sort of mainstream Labour figures, new Labour figures, they would have gone into it with the assumption that everyone was trying to get them. They were never going to get any positive press from, you know, the vast majority of, of the print media and kind of acted accordingly. Whereas I think it really did take Cameron and to a lesser extent Osborne by surprise that, that oh, oh, you hate me now. <laughs> what do you hate me now? 
It's funny, Reed. I think in Craig Oliver's book, he and maybe in the Tim Shipman book, they mention it that there was an mm-hmm. element of surprise, not by them, but you know, by Cameron and perhaps Osborne, that oh, this is so much harder when the press aren't just immediately on site. Yeah, <laughs> of course it is. Um, you mentioned being a punch bag there for the for the for the hard left. I mean, did it? Did you go on a bit of a journey with it then? Did it? it because I imagine a lot of people who are into Corbynism probably would have been a fan of yours and would have read the New Statesman and stuff and The Guardian. Then it, it all started quite gently and then it, this onion slowly unpeeled itself over a period of years. I mean, did was there a point at which you effectively uh, felt that you'd kicked the hornet's nest or that people had figured out that actually you weren't a, a, a true believer? Well, I feel annoyed about that because I think I've got a suite of political opinions which I think are probably way to the left of most of of Britain but the thing that it did change you know I would happily jack up inheritance tax to you know levels unheard of um but you know I just the one thing that happened to me is I completely detached from the idea that I think I'd unconsciously carried around in my 20s that being left-wing was the same as being nice or being good it was being a good person who cared about other people um, and I care much less now. If you want to describe me as a centrist, someone tried to describe me as uh, as a conservative. <laughs> I was like, I mean, if you want to describe me like that, you're just making yourself sound insane. You know, uh, I'm just I'm just self evidently not. But if that's if that's fine, if if in comparison to you, I am conservative, then that's I can't really worry about that. So I think it it broke my kind of feeling of. Any remaining tribal affiliation, that plus writing about feminism, particularly writing about gender, you know, the feeling that you were part of a, a tribe. I, I am not, I'm, and I don't want to be, and I think it makes you a better journalist if you're if everyone hates you. <laughs> well, sorry, it's true. Well, everyone doesn't hate you, so does that mean you're a bad but, journalist? No, but you know what I mean, though. Like, I would hate to be. I, so I was at um, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, his inauguration um, the first week of January. And there was a guy from obviously one of these right wing channels. And he was he was wearing a waistcoat. He looked like a stage magician. Um, which was yeah, very What is it with this sort of libertarian right? Have, and, and over here, there's a sort of dandyishness. Bow ties. You're like, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so he was. And- Anyway. He was there in his waistcoat and he was he was obviously live broadcasting to Rumble or whatever about the fact that oh, I'm up here with the mainstream media and like, oh, I hope they're all held to account for their crimes during COVID. And then all the way through DeSantis' speech, which everybody else from like local TV news and the Miami Herald and Tampa Bay Times and all this stuff and me, all just like noting down because we're there to be reporters. This guy was going, yeah, woo. And I was like, I, I, how can I explain to you? I don't applaud politicians when they come on stage you know i do not part of the standing ovation you sit there at labor party conference tory party conference everyone else is is like doing their kind of pravda thing and you look stony faced because you're there to do a particular job and i don't know there's this really odd idea now on so much of social media that the best journalists are the sort of uncritical endorsers of politicians no 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 no. politicians have their job i have my job and they're two completely separate things but do you think it is tempting, isn't it? I think for journalists who obviously have political opinions to then want to almost get swept up in it all and and do it whatever they can. You know, they want the world to be a better place. This politician they think is going to deliver that, and they kind of want to lend their skills to that. But then, obviously, once you've done that, you, you're effectively not a journalist. And how do you then go back? Yeah, I mean, I for me personally, I think it should be 
if you leave journalism to go into politics, it should be it should be one one way because I don't see how you can ever come back and then not see it. And I I do think it has been really hard to deal with the fact that um, you know Allegra Stratton went from ITV into Downing Street and then back out and now to Bloomberg, and she has to include these disclaimers, you know, sort of saying, by the way, you know, I worked for Downing Street and now my husband works for Downing Street. And on one level, amazing access. But on another level, it's just it puts you in a profoundly difficult position. And so if I ever found a politician that I no, I mean, I'm just I say if I ever found a politician that I liked enough to go and write the speeches and then I think to myself, no, that will simply that will simply never happen. I'm not a, I'm not a believer like that. But if I did, then I think I would just feel like I've given it up and I'd have to go and do something else afterwards, because how could anyone ever take you? I just I fundamentally I, this makes me sound like a weird monk, but I feel like being a journalist is like a, a calling like it's a it's a role in society right it needs this to is. exist like doctors or lawyers and you do that you don't do other things that's what you do yes. and the and the americans are much more steadfast about this so for example one of the things in the atlantic is that you can't go to ever uh, as a as a member like a um a fundraising event or a political rally you can't attend them uh and i I'm, this is quite controversial, but I'm I'm completely in favour of that. I think if people see you, you know, at at, at Labour Party conference cheering someone on, that's they, you know that they know that you're not, you know, you're there to do you're there to advance those those ideals, and like that's not that's a different job. That's a good job, but it's it's a completely different job to what I see myself as doing. But you're absolutely right that, that a, a journalist has a specific function, and society requires. That you dispatch now. Obviously, it also it attracts people who can dispatch that function with beautiful language and and can make you change your mind. And I, I guess the creative side of it is also what drives you. But you're absolutely right. You can't once you cross that line. And also, for your own professional satisfaction, we all know how we feel about the credibility of those people that kind of call themselves a journalist but actually campaign and are very open about it, and then and then get offended when people say. But you're a campaigner, not a journalist. There's the thing is, I guess that I just fundamentally don't want to read those people because mm. if you already like the worst possible thing you can be as, as a journalist is somebody where you already know what the conclusion is going to be at the start of the article. Or, yeah, I know I've been thinking about this a lot. I am. Um, I also think that journalists shouldn't accept honours. Um, so it's this is funny. This is like this is very presumptuous, isn't it? This is like me deciding my desert island disc as if I'm ever <laughs> going to get asked to go on desert island disc. But I don't think you should. I don't think you you should accept you should I I find that you know it's very funny to me because my old editor Paul Dacre has obviously been desperate for a knighthood or a peerage preferably for 20 years now but you are not part of the establishment your whole job is to be outside the establishment being the one chucking bottles at it but just to play devil's advocate what if it you know for services to journalism at the end of a career the country through the monarchy, through the honour system, through the imperfect system that we have. So, Helen, thank you so much for holding us to account. Here's a little badge. <laughs> you make it sound very appealing. Well, you can revisit this uh, when I'm a, when I'm a massive hypocrite who is now Dame Helen Lewis. That's or clearly I think it's going to happen. The thing I think is is true is I think being a working peer is really good. I think I, I think if you I think there's a rationale for taking a peerage if you want to go and be a legislator and bring your scrutiny because the upper house does a lot of incredibly good work because they no one can sack them right they're kind of uncancellable yeah. and that means that they don't have to, and they don't have to stand for election so in its proper form there are but the house of lords in its current form is just a pack of 
cronies. I mean, for a start, I feel it, it is mental that we still have 92 hereditary peers in. Yes. I think at the moment, every single one of them men. So well done. We have essentially got 10% of the seats in our upper house reserved for men. That's a very modern country. Well, that means well 90% that. aren't reserved for men, Helen. You know, this no, is actually huge progress. <laughs> Well, it's huge progress from like 1382. Yeah, I guess that that's true. Or certainly like the rump parliament of 16, whenever. But, you know, and the fact that it's now stuffed with so many people and you don't have to, I think you should only be in the House of Lords if you are if you are there to work. It yes. is not a gentleman's dining club. So it's not an organisation or institution I would want to be part of. So thanks, Matt. But um, do pass back to the Herald Extraordinary or whatever that I won't be accepting that OBE. But were you ever tempted to go into politics? Because obviously you, you, you've got very clear political ideas, you're very articulate, you're highly intelligent. You know, Was there ever a point where you thought, oh, I'd go and work for a party or an individual or, or even seek office yourself? Did that ever cross your mind? Nope. Not once. Not, a single time. Not once, no. And I'll tell you why. I'm really... Uh... <laughs> Lazy? <laughs> I, I, I'm really lazy, yes. That's actually it. Uh, no, I, I have I've always wanted to be a writer. I've always wanted to go places and look at things and write it down and share those ideas with someone else. I wouldn't... I couldn't... I don't deal well with collective responsibility. If you look at... You know, having worked at the New Statesman, which was a small independent magazine and now The Atlantic, I like not having to toe a kind of party line, you know? Um that is that restricts hugely what you have to say because of the corporate interests of the people who own it um so i don't think i would deal very well with that and also i just think I, you know i'm an atheist for example and i got divorced in slightly salubrious circumstances which i've written about in the book and i just thought you know i don't you know i don't I, and i'm and i don't have kids so all of those stuff that the things that we are i think people would be horrible about all of those things and i'd sort of just rather not put myself through that really has any politician ever said, could you help us out, finesse a speech or just give us a bit of advice here or there, or would you be interested? No, not like not like that. Oh, <laughs> well, the thing is, the, 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 I mean, okay, there's, I'm, I'm sensing this has happened a lot to you. If you do, you, you get asked this a lot. Uh, not really, no, but occasionally, it's only a very informal and, and sort of friendly. It's never like, will you come and work for us? Yeah, but like, presumably they're all desperate for you to write jokes for them because all politicians are desperate to be funny. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe they've got my old number or something. But <laughs> I get but the occasional uh, request, which I always turn down. Here's another example of my slight orneriness: um, is that I've never been a member of the lobby, uh, and I had a chance to do that. So I said, I actually, I don't want to. Um, it's a very different type of journalist. Now, there are people I know who do exceptionally well. So I'm friends, for example, with um, Sam Coates at Sky News, and he is an absolute bloodhound. That yes, man loves news and he loves stories and he loves lines and he lo and he can remember every micro detail of everything that everyone has said before and how that's, that the line has changed. And it is such an incredible skill. It's not one I particularly have or want to acquire. And so I don't deprecate what that that, that what lobby journalism does. But I, I've never had. I am. I mean, I'm implicitly worried about what the, what a double-edged sword that level of access to politicians has on you. Um, and I think if you're in the lobby, then the, the boundary tends to be a lot more fluid, doesn't it? Because you're you're hanging around with politicians every day. You work in the same building. You know, you're travelling with them on the plane and stuff like that. And people get very excited. And I, I also think this is, this is full of my incredibly alienating opinions so that let's hope that no one none of my friends who work in political journalism says i find it a bit gauche when people are like here's the photo of me outside dining street for my twitter profile photo 
because it's like you sort of shouldn't let on that you find it all really exciting. And yes. I know everybody spends all the politics running around going, oh, my God, it's just like the West Wing. Uh, and that's true of spads as well as journalists. But you should you shouldn't be over. You should try and consciously work all the time on treating it like it like you're going to work in Morrison's. You know, you're just there to do a job. You're not there to cosplay being Josh Lyman. Although in my head, obviously, you know, I, I think if I was a politician and I saw that a journalist had that sort of profile picture, I'd think, well, that's someone I can impress by inviting them more often. You know, that you're basically telling them what they can do to butter you yeah. up a little bit. Yeah, I think that's I think that's that's true, um, and it's really hard because you go into that kind of journalism because you're incredibly good at making contacts and and schmoozing people. Um, so again, it's not something that you know. And without being rude to the shadow cabinet, I love them all dearly as people. I'm sure they're all great. I, my idea of a banging Thursday night is not it's not it's not hanging out with them. Wow, that's harsh. But it is a bit. I mean, I think some members of the shadow cabinet would be good on a Thursday night. No, I'm. I am being. I'm being massively overly harsh. Being, Some of them are incredibly smart, but yeah, exactly. I'm being gratuitously, pointlessly <laughs> rude uh, in a way that I'm objectively against. But you know what I mean. Like, I, I think you shouldn't go into journalism because you want to hang out with the cabinet. You should go into journalism because you want to write about what the cabinet does, and your relationships with them are professional. Like, I find it very weird when people go on holiday with politicians. What <laughs> journalists? I mean, I it, I, I've heard of that happening. Yes. I mean, and I find it very been, weird, and it's a very yeah. posh person thing, isn't it, about going on holiday with other people anyway. Like, my family would never have gone on holiday with another family. That's that's just not my, you know, pretty solidly middle-class family. It was just not a thing that we would ever have done or considered doing. No, same. I mean, I've been on holiday with friends who aren't politicians. Right, good. good I mean, the thought of going on holiday with a politician is like, fills you with dread. It's like going on holiday with a teacher. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what? Yeah. You don't want an authority figure there. You want to enjoy yourself. I know, I know. I remember hearing a story about someone, and I can't remember who it's about now, and they worked in a think tank, and their best man also worked in a think tank. And the best man's speech, they stood up and essentially gave a sort of speech about tax policy. <laughs> God. Um, and I sort of think that's the that's when you've got, you know, lobby disease, I guess, and you need to go and sort of touch grass for a bit. Equally, a lot of these people are very talented people, and they produce a lot of high quality work. Um, some of some I'm of sure. my best friends are political journalists. <laughs> no, but I, and I think the, the the good ones among them entirely acknowledge the inherent risks of the profession. Right? There's an there's inherent risks. I mean, is it like okay? Here's here's a kind of thing that is an inherent risk to the position in journalism that I occupy is when you see yourself in your kind of self images as a, con a contrarian. Sometimes you argue yourself into like that this arguing that black is white and the sky is green, right? That's that's the inherent risk of the position that I occupy. You end up saying things that are spicy purely because they're spicy, not because they're true and need saying. So any bit of journalism has its inherent risk. I mean, I'm sure every profession has its inherent risks, and that's it's just a different one for them than it is for me. But heck, God knows enough contrarian journalists have gone mad. That it's not like arguing that that's a problematic free way of approaching things. No, and I know that happened before social media, but in a way, I mean, obviously, 2010 was kind of pre-social media. I mean, I guess Twitter then was just people posting cat videos and their dinner. But it was yeah, it was I think it, I think 2013 was when it all kicked off. Certainly, yes. the feminism wars did in 2013 on Twitter, and that was initially that was about race rather than uh, gender specifically. But that's when it all got quite. Yeah, and then, then you have this independence referendum in 2014, which is the first time I think you really see in Britain this kind of idea of running against the media. That 
bashing the BBC becomes an incredibly useful campaign tool in a way that hadn't quite been done before. And so it, it accelerates from there. And you mentioned the feminism wars in 2013. I mean, I sort of feel quite ignorant about this. I didn't realise 2013 was like a landmark year in that regard. So what happened? I think you just ended up with a... Um, I mean, a lot of it was down to a singular event, which was Catelyn Moran's How to Be a Woman became massive, just huge. And, you know, and she became the kind of figurehead of this new wave of feminism. It was very, very digital. It was like kind of the fourth wave. Um, and there was suddenly lots of interesting commissioning around it in liberal publications. So lots of people were getting their first shot at, you know, at a job. Um, you know, it was a high premium based on personal stories, which is something that we then saw throughout the 2010s in that kind of late blogging era as you know and, and if you were 20 and you wanted to get a commission kind of writing about yourself and about feminism was an incredibly good way to to do it um and so it was a kind of you know I, I wrote about this in difficult women a bit i felt like it was a gold rush essentially and so some of the people who were left out of that gold rush understandably thought the game was rigged in favor of white middle class privately educated you know women um and had some kind of concerns about it and then you put that into the blender with the fact that they could express those opinions and the fact that other people could express those opinions in even more vivid and striking terms. And it was a recipe for everybody kind of having a big, <laughs> big sort of civil war, basically. And here we are 10 years later and the conversations around the Gender Recognition Act, the difference between sex and gender and uh, all the multitudes of, of the layers of, of that debate. Are the camps from 2013 on sort of one side or the other when it comes to this debate? Or are they fractured? Yeah, it's not a subject that I write about very much anymore. And there's a good reason for that, which is that I was writing about it when it was uh, completely, you know, completely ignored and people just didn't know anything about it. And that meant that you had to write about it in one very particular way. You know, you had to explain the very, very basic principles that were kind of at stake. And so that's some of the stuff that I do. I date that really back to 2015 and the first Women and Equalities Inquiry under Maria Miller in which she endorsed self-ID um, and said that anybody who had any questions about it was, quote, unquote, a fake feminist. And now she herself has kind of gone, oh, actually, now I now I think about it. Now, now you mention it. There are some difficult policy things that we need to work through here. And you're like, yes, if only you had thought about this at the start, Maria Miller. Um, whereas the problem about writing about it now is that it is this radioactive subject with incredibly strong feelings on both sides, people feeling bruised from years of, um, you know, on intimidation, um, you know, um, and the rhetoric is incredibly high. Um, so it's just a complete different challenge to write about it now. The thing that's interesting to me is that um, Corbynism got kind of redirected. So a lot of the energy from Corbynism after 2017 and to a greater extent 2019 got redirected into it. it you know, it's quite easy to predict someone's opinions on self-ID by their opinions on Corbyn, which isn't naturally given that i don't think corbyn himself he went to the pink news awards and he said oh, my name's jeremy corbyn and my pronouns are he him but he was essentially just like 70 year old and that wasn't his political issue at you know nicaragua he cares about like gender self-id it's not really his bag but um you know and john mcdonald met with some of the gender critical groups so he was again the, the more thoughtful half of that partnership but you know it was it was just a kind of place where some of that energy went after the corbyn project was a bust i think so yeah i think people did end up on quite different sides than perhaps they would have expected and perhaps they ended up there for reasons that are not entirely about the subject itself 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Obviously, this issue has been around a, a long time, and it's perhaps... I didn't appreciate, certainly in terms of the trans issue and, and self-ID, actually how big a deal it had been really before... The Scottish government introduced self-ID, and that really seems to have forced it to the top of the agenda. And you're right, you know, post-Corbyn, you had a whole load of activists who don't want to just stop being activists. You know, there's a whole, a whole load of issues throughout history. You know, I don't want to get into Israel-Palestine, but part of that is the anti-apartheid movement wants somewhere else to go. And often part of the problem is, is that people think that, oh, this is the same, so we move on to the next issue. And actually, the next issue isn't the same. It is different. And if you're just trying to apply of it like that, that's really interesting that you get the same yeah energy about kind of colonialism and exploitation that goes on. That yeah. that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I think that the thing is that it um it's very hard now for people who only just started paying attention to make them understand what it was like to talk about the issue in 2014. You know, I went I, I consider myself to be an extremely normie, boring moderate who believes that ultimately we will find some compromise solutions and that, you know, trans women are women, trans men are men, but not in exactly the same way as somebody's born biologically female. You know, lots of, without getting too Marxist about it, the basis of female oppression is female assumed or actual reproductive capacity, right? It's not like, you know, the women were oppressed in 1300 because they liked wearing pretty dresses. No, they were oppressed because they were the class that gave birth. And so there are always going to be tensions between identity and and biology but that said you know for those opinions i um a representative from stonewall wouldn't go on women's hour and be in the same studio as me that was their no platform policy and they ran that policy throughout the middle of the 2010s and i think it's one of the most destructive things that a charity has ever done because it said basically here's this huge legislative policy change that we want that entires it it has a whole kind of metaphysics behind it and you cannot discuss it it is simply you know we will not tolerate any discussion of it. anyone who does by definition is bigoted and that put, that flooded the whole scene with poison uh it meant that people like me you know, were persona non grata. I'm still persona non grata. And guess what? It was then a, a debate that attracted, you know, extremists on both sides who really were there to be, have a ruck or, or work out some traumas in their own lives, actually. Sometimes that's what I see in a lot of that. But um, I, I think that the passage of that bill in Scotland has been very poor. And to compare it to something else, I think it's very reminiscent of the hate crimes legislation up there, which was very poorly drafted and had this mad thing that if, if you said in the kind of something that was someone else thought was inflammatory in your own home this was something that the government was going to be involved in and they kind of had to roll back from that 
So I think it speaks to really a larger failure of policymaking and the policy development process in, in Scotland. Um, and that is a result of the fact that, you know, there has been, it is a one party, functionally a one party state and has now been for, for a very long time. The SNP's incredible electoral success has brought with it a suite of challenges in that Scottish civil society is now kind of deformed around that, essentially. Um you know, in the same way that I'm sure people make that criticism about the long Tory dominance at, at Westminster. It's very funny now to see businesses suddenly going, oh, I hear the Labour Party is a thing. Maybe we should have a stand at Labour Party conference. <laughs> you know, when you're in power for a long time, then lots of benefits accrue to you and people listen to you and want to be close to you and want to lobby you and want to you know, fund you and support you. People are attracted to power like that. And, and just thinking about how Stonewall effectively changed, and there's a great, uh, talking of great documentary series, Stephen Nolan's series on BBC Sounds About Stonewall is another amazing, just immersive, great piece of journalism, which I'm sure you've listened to. I have, and I have to say my actual favourite, Stephen Nolan trying to understand the cost, concept of being cisgender is worth the price of uh, <laughs> press permission alone. But Thompson, his producer, who is an absolute demon who understands every nuance of the Equality Act and the interaction between the Gender Recognition Act and the Equality Act is my is the true hero of that podcast because it's a lot for people to kind of get their, their heads around. But you're right, there's a very funny thing. You know, I was at, on a panel at Labour Party conference in the early 2010s with Ruth, um, I was going to say Ruth Kelly, but I'm getting my Labour people mixed up. No, uh, the former head of Stonewall. Uh, you know, so I was on a, I was on a Stonewall. I was considered a kind of, you know, and I would have seen myself as a kind of person who would have been on a Stonewall panel um, versus last year when I wanted to do an event um, with Maureen Colhoun, who's in my book, the first Labour lesbian MP, um, her daughter on the anniversary of her death. And we had that all set up with LGBT Labour. And then people heard that I was involved and that event got cancelled because I, because I'm not allowed to be platformed by LGBT Labour. Um you know that is the that is the evil. Uh, my views have remained exactly the same, and that's the transformation of that part of the Labour Party and left wing politics. And how does that make you feel as someone who is effectively moderate, considered not out to cause offence, to be effectively labelled a transphobe? Yeah, I mean, I hate it obviously, and I, it's not a label I would embrace or um, feel proud of or anything. And I don't consider myself to be hateful or bigoted, and I'm sure everybody says that but then people have to make up their own minds and for me the only reason I keep talking about it is I think it's profoundly sexist I went through a list of, of the women whose, whose careers had suffered and it, and it was a list of women um you know there are a couple of high profile notable male exceptions but they're people who are really you know very much committed to this and this has been their full cause versus you get women who said one wrong thing or published one very low-key non-inflammatory thing so there has been I, I do find it very hard to separate it out from a kind of wider backlash against against feminism and that's the only reason that I really keep talking about it I you know I don't have any problem with great with making the gender recognition process more streamlined which actually the Tory government did right they took away that they re massively reduced the fee and tried to simplify the process but they did say that we're still going to go through this quasi-medical bureaucratic process um and so that's yeah that's that's the bit that makes me annoyed because when I see some sexism happening and I do in in the way the condescending way that women have been treated then and you know and the fact that it has become a sort of way of trying to ch shut women up um when they're talking about their own biology you know when they're talking if, if you suddenly if you're going to start talking about women giving birth and people say oh we can't don't talk about that that's 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 not we don't talk about that anymore then as much as that right-wing politician who said i don't want to hear the word vagina i'm going to say look i'm sorry but you have to be allowed to say the word vagina or we how, how is feminism supposed to continue sorry matt you've got me 
I try not to um <laughs> I try not to go off on one but that's yeah. really interesting because I think a lot of people are just so scared to engage with it for mm. fear of being labeled right. a transphobe or thinking Correct, <clears throat> so. am I having transphobic or it just just seems like such a minefield that they just think it's just easier to not even consider it which obviously then leaves the field exclusively really to to, to the sorts of people you're describing but it has something else happened here, and I guess we've sort of alluded to it that that post Corbyn, a, a sort of engaged group of people, then put their energies into other things. But also that reputable or a previously reputable organisation effectively been taken over, and, and Stonewall went from being a, a, a kind of lauded organisation, a, a, a gay rights organisation that was effectively seen almost as not politically neutral, but but reputable. And has ended up in you know the place that it's in now. Amnesty International have ended up in a position where they're saying things about Ukraine that's just appalling. It, 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 it seems in the in the last few years that that effectively reputable houses have been taken over by militant activists, and that's having an effect on the on the on the public sphere. I do think there have been cases where that's happened. So Simon Fanshawe, who's one of the founders of Stonewall, involved in setting up the LGB Alliance. His sort of diagnosis of what had happened was that after gay marriage, particularly the legislative road for LGB rights had run out. There were things that still need to be done. You know, kids still get homophobically bullied in school, for example. Like there was stuff that needed to be done. But in terms of a legislative program that as a lobbying organization that you needed to do, that there wasn't a lot left. So what do you do? Do you pack up and go home? Well, no, you don't, do you? You find you find the next thing. And that's what's, you know, something similar has happened in the US. I mean, hopefully some of this is kind of coming back now, but there was an extraordinary article by the head of Planned Parenthood, you know, the reproductive rights charity saying, oh, we're a racial justice organization now. You know, we don't want to be held back by quote unquote Karens. It's a very sexist term, Karens. Yeah. And you were like, okay, but there are some really good racial justice organizations already. So why don't you do <laughs> the abortion rights thing? And of course, then what happens? You get the Dobbs decision this year, essentially overturning Roe versus Wade, overturning the constitutional right to an abortion. Lots of states immediately bring in very draconian laws about abortion. And where is the infrastructure to fight that? It's often its own self-flagellating crusade about whether or not it has to say pregnant people and atoning for its past crimes and the fact that Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist and not doing the thing that people have paid their subs for it to do, which is fight to stop women dying you know, because they've had a backstreet abortion or 10-year-olds have had to bear their rapist baby. I think it's an appalling thing to have done. But it was a very hard thing to sort of oppose because it was, again, it was it was conflated with being the same as not being on board with racial justice. And you're like, no, it's, but it's okay for people to have different roles in society. We don't all have to do everything badly. You can do one thing really well. And that's right. Like, I don't, I'm not sure why Amnesty, you know, it's Amnesty's position on, sex work is essentially like pro punter and i you know my position on sex work is fairly close to the nordic model i would say like i don't think you should ever anyone who sells sex should never face criminalization because people go through terrible economic hardship and whatever you have to do to survive is you know is, is fine by me but i'm not in fact i don't think it's a, a world in which more people are buying sex is a good one and like why is that amnesty really thinks that it thinks that german mega brothels are great and good and just a bit of excellent capitalist free market like what is that about i mean it's, you found another the, rant it turns out well, you no, no, but this is, all my this is, all my hot spots today <laughs> no but this is this is why it's such an interesting debate and i think some people until they get into the details of it actually probably haven't really thought about where they stand on it and they might reach a different conclusion to where they would presume they were based on their sort of broad politics. But 
is another thing that's happened here that the mixture of politicians, some of whom value being effectively having the moral high ground over their opponents. So you could say that about the SNP, that what they always want to do is say, you know, Scotland is leading the way and, and they use that sort of language around the gender recognition that effectively we are morally better than specifically England. Like that's part of the thing is that we've done it better up here. Scotland welcomes refugees and trans people and everything. You know, that's, that's part of their political identity is that we are actually morally better. But for the Tories in Westminster, why then have they effectively gone down a similar road and 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 not uh, again not put the resistance up is is it that this is more the civil service that this is a sort of like round the back lobbying campaign what explains a kind of conservative party of various different prime ministers all effectively allowing this stuff to happen in 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 Tory England well i think i once said you know that joke in it's faulty towers where they're like the Americans having been late to the last world war are very keen on turning up early to the next one. I sort of felt a bit like that about the Conservative Party that actually they, you know, having adopted after the Labour did the kind of grunt work with civil partnerships and, and broke that through to then the and I think David Cameron's formulation of, you know, I support gay marriage because I'm a conservative, incredible piece of political positioning. Um, they really loved it. They really loved the social issues and being in that right place. And I think they thought that was a natural continuation, of it. as as did I. And I think to some extent it is, right? The thing I will always say when we talk about this subject is that your life is objectively harder if you are transgender than if you're not. You know, it is a huge decision to make. You risk alienating your family. You risk getting harassed in the street. You have to go through this bureaucratic process. It is a tough, tough, tough thing to go to. There is a genuine complaint there. So I think there's a lot of that, that you know, there is a lot of that agenda that I support it's just and I think in most circumstances realistically self-ID is fine like if someone tells me their name I will call them that name that's just how life works you know I'm not going to kind of go can I see your birth certificate and check you've always been called that but you know the, the bits where I have problems are for example prison policy it's just uh, sports uh child med medicalization those are the three big ones for me so I think that you know there was a sort of desire to to do the victory lap of having done something. And I particularly thought that was true in the case of Maria Miller, who felt that the first line of her political obituary was going to be expenses cheap Maria Miller. And now she'd had this vision that she could be pioneering Women and Equalities Committee chair Maria Miller, you know, who ushered through this great piece of legislation. And I think you're exactly right. Like the diagnosis of, of the SNP, particularly Nicola Sturgeon, you know, someone who's always said I'm a feminist politician and yet had this very awkward fact of the fact she had been the protégé of Alex Salmond, a man who was then accused of being a sex pest. And in the course of that investigation, you know, was revealed to have some fairly, <laughs> I don't know, what's the libel safe way of describing this, but unorthodox kind of approaches to person, like communicating with his staff and this, this, this professional environment that was quite boozy and, uh, you know, the boundaries were quite blurry. And, you know, oh, and so she was facing all these questions of, did you not see this happening? Was this, does not this make you feel uncomfortable at the time? And that's not a discussion that she particularly wants to have. Neither is the discussion she wants to have, but who are perhaps some of the most, you know, troubled people in a society? Well, I'd say homeless drug addicts. And the figures, particularly in places like Glasgow, for, the, for, for homelessness and drug addiction are appalling. Scotland's education figures are, are, are not great either. And, you know, and that was one of her flagship pledges and so there's a, a lot of discussions about social issues that the SNP would absolutely rather not have what they would much rather be having is the big fight with people outside 
the Scottish Parliament where they can go look at these horrible people trying to hold back as we are once again try and push forward in Scotland on into the 21st century. So I think in politics, you always have to look at the fights that politicians want to have and the ones that they don't want to have. And I think this was a fight they very much wanted to have because they felt they were on the right side of history versus why is your, you know, why are your deprivation statistics so appalling is not a fight that they wanted to have. I mentioned it earlier, but your podcast, The New Gurus, is exceptional and I hope we'll get another series of it. You you cover various gurus in it and, and I guess there's a political element to some of them, but were you tempted to do a series or, or an episode rather on effectively political gurus or political leaders? That's an interesting question. Uh I wasn't because I wanted to do the, I wanted to do the alternatives to the mainstream. And it's um and particularly one of the things I wanted to do was a BBC audience, which is a big broad mainstream audience. I wanted to convey how popular some of these spaces are. You know, like for me, crypto was a really big learning journey. I was aware of crypto, I was aware of the blockchain, I was aware that I had default prejudices against nfts which looked like the sort of dutch tulip craze <laughs> but i i was not aware just the huge amounts of, of money that were being involved and the fact that crypto itself was undergirding all of this other stuff so boris johnson i think booked to speak at a crypto conference in singapore i'm pretty sure with dick cheney which yeah. is like two men i would definitely go to for financial advice absolutely um nigel farage speaks at bitcoin conferences you know he used to be a sort of gold bug and now he's a, a kind of bitcoin bug so there is a definitely an interaction with spaces that i'm talking about but i wanted to give the the audience on radio 4 a kind of sense of, of here's all this stuff happening on the internet and if you're not into it it's almost completely invisible to you and actually the weird thing about crypto is in the course of that um making of the series that sam bankman freed happened and that really brought the kind of huge regulatory problems of crypto into the front of people's minds but you know there's there's crypto regulation legislation being mooted in in the us that is kind of in process but most people it's where social media was 10 years ago they're sort of aware it happens and people are quite critical about it and other people say if you're critical about it you're a massive luddite but they that you know i think that's about the kind of you know what i think of as the kind of parents my parents level of, of knowledge of it and that's you know and so there is a kind of education about this stuff is happening and it's not weird shit happening on the internet. It's stuff that intersects with your actual life. But it's also, it's, it's a great, fun, funny series and you engage with people in such an honest way. You're not taking the mick out of them, you're engaging with them in a in a you know an open hard way and that really comes across. I mean, so many great episodes, taking the urine, the guy who drinks his weird and basically admits that can't really prove it's any good for anything <laughs> I love Will. I I got off the as I say in the episode, I got off the phone with him and I thought, what is not a lovely young man? Yeah. And that to me was an interesting thing to do because he's also an anti-vaxxer. And I wanted to understand what had got him to that place rather than just saying, you know, given that it is basically pointless to say to people who are anti-vaccination, well, you're wrong. Science says you're wrong. That's not going to, like, I, that wouldn't convince me if I held an opinion, someone asserting something. So it's kind of interesting to understand psychologically. And one of the things that came across in some, a lot of those anti-vax communities is about feelings of being sort of harmed by the medical system. And at, fundamentally, he had two complaints which are true, which is one is that, you know, North American food is full of shit. Uh, <laughs> it is. Yeah, it is. It's yeah. just stuff that you, like, you know, Tastes good like though, Rishi Sunak going on about how much he loves Mexican Coke. And it's like, because you can't put that stuff in it here. <laughs> um, you know, so the, the idea that food is slowly poisoning you, go down the aisles of a kind of, you know, American supermarket and think, what is, what's in this? This ball of white stuff that's calling itself cheese. What is this? Um, and, you know, and the fact that 
people go to doctors with psychological problems in his case you know anxiety uh, or but you could equally say the same about depression or about you know um, other kinds of maladaptive behaviors and what they'd get when they need someone to listen to them and really talk them through it they, what they get instead is a prescription and so I wanted to kind of convey to people that those were genuine real phenomena and I could see how that then leads to a much wider disenchantment with the medical system and so actually that makes it all the more important to have really good this is my normie policy wonk brain coming through that makes why it makes it really important to have really good food regulation and also properly fund mental health services in your healthcare system which is to, which is not if, if someone said to you how are you going to reduce vaccine hesitancy that's not necessarily the two answers that they would come up with but no. they are two i think quite useful answers the, i mean every every episode i was just thinking this is my favorite and then i'd listen to the next one um the the profits of doom one's great about um people who think the world's going to end pick up artists i mean it's a, a great mix of different worlds of gurus but, but at the end when you wrap it all up most gurus are men and um there's i can't remember what episode it is where like it's older men as well and I couldn't. The reason I ask about politics is I, I kept thinking Corbyn was basically a sort of, you know, he fits the profile of kind of Netflix documentary cult leader. You know, even down to the beard, the sort of messianic element, the kind of um, that false modesty. You know, he, he's not that charismatic. Can I say that how glad we're putting this out on a podcast? Am I going to be testing to the absolute limits my theory that you can't get cancelled for anything you say on a podcast because people are too lazy to listen to it? Well, but I think people know what I mean. I'm I'm not saying that. No, you know, I know what you mean exactly. So there are um, there's a podcast that I found out after we launched the series. I was very worried they think I was ripping them off, but they haven't. They've been lovely to me. Called Decoding the Gurus. It's by two academics, an Australian guy called Matt Brown. Um, and a, a Northern Irishman in Japan called Chris Kavanagh, and they have what they call a gurometer. And so when they look at people, they started off looking at the intellectual dark web and they now look at people much more broadly. So they've looked at Russell Brand, Robin D'Angelo, some of the people I've covered in the series. And they score them for a couple of things. One of them is galaxy brainness, which is the idea that you have an amazing opinion on absolutely everything and you, you that there's these truths that absolutely need to be told. Um, and, and another one of the conspiracy theorists is, you know, conspiracy mongering is another one. But one of them that I think is really interesting is grievance mongering. So if you're this person who is not in the mainstream, is not being lauded, has not been given the due that you think you're, you deserve, what's your explanation for that? And it's that someone is holding you back. And I think you saw that completely with Corbyn. I remember writing a piece at the time that said, why do his followers treat him like he's a bird with a broken wing? People were horrible about Theresa May, not least her own party who savaged her relentlessly and repeatedly voting against her and then chucked her out unceremoniously you know when she was an uncharismatic but ultimately principled and hard-working person but but no one ever was treated Theresa May in that like how could they all she wanted was to achieve a Brexit that meant Brexit you know that's a red white and blue Brexit that's all she ever wanted but people did talk about Corbyn in those in those terms like all he's ever done throughout his entire political career is love people and you're like he put a wreath on the grave for some terrorists like he advocates peace where peace means capitulating to a dictator you know this is not actually all softly softly gently like i would that was that was what always annoyed me about that project right was it was all like why can't we just get along and you're like how do you suggest we all just get along with vladimir putin just you know or bashar al-assad like just help help me out here but but he he does fit a lot if you go through and read their garometer then you will see that he does fit quite a quite a few of them. He doesn't fit the one about kind of um, 
like grifting, like merchandise. Although there were, if you remember, that was a, a high or low period for Labour Party merchandise, depending on your, your point of view. No no one's Keir Starmer merchandise is anything like as iconic. And the only good Ed Miliband merchandise was the terrible Controls on Immigration mug, if you remember. He never sold a commemorative tiny Edstone, which I would have bought, personally. I would have had one of them. You know what? I want a, I want a part of the original. I would love to get... You know, you can buy bits of the Berlin Wall. Yeah, or the True Cross. It's like a relic. <laughs> but they didn't they fairly... I think we're fairly certain now that they sort of took it in the dead of night somewhere and grind it down into dust, never to be seen again. I heard it's in a rooftop cocktail bar in Kensington. No, come on, we'd have seen it. Yeah, but I think the people who go to those sorts of bars probably won't appreciate what uh, what's underneath their nose. But I, I genuinely, because um, I'd, I'd heard it would have been taken into the dead of night and ground down, but I'd also heard that it was in some rooftop bar. Here's the thing that I was still the best thing ever said about. I think it was Chris Deering wrote it was the heaviest suicide note in history. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Oh, that's which so is a jo- good. A joke that only works to people who know Michael Foote's 1983 yes. Labour Manifesto, which is obviously therefore somewhat... Of a, and I feel like you might be one of them. Oh, uh, so, yeah. And Gerald uh, Kaufman's analysis of it. Um, yeah. uh, I've just remembered that you met Jordan... Pe- I mean, that's great when you talk about Jordan Peterson on the on, on, on the podcast. And I didn't realise that you'd interviewed him and that that had gone viral and everything. I mean... He's obviously a you really live a very sheltered life, Matt. You've managed to avoid these terrible internet controversies. <laughs> what you do? Are you are you like learning Sanskrit or the like bagpipes or something? What are you doing with your time that's much more productive than being on football. the internet arguing with people? Watching football. Well, still, I still get on the internet. Well, I get more argued at than argued with. Really, I, I, I try not to engage now with with negative forces on the internet. But because um, he's someone that I know, there was a period of time where some mates of mine would go, "Oh, you got to read Jordan Peterson." And you go, okay, this is interesting. I remember the Kathy Newman interview, and you go, okay, this is clearly someone who uh, is bright and can structure an argument and can sort of almost, not Hitchens, but like when you're watching a great debater, even if you disagree with them, you're like, okay, the guy's got skills. And then obviously <laughs> in time, it, 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 in, a, in a way, stock has waned, certainly on the, amongst progressives. But is he, um, what what's his deal, do you think? I mean, it, it, is it all just... A mirage, or or is there something sort of of quality there? I think when he started, there was a kind of he fitted a, a very good niche. So you know, Russell Brand fits a niche, which is one that we know exists, right? Which is what people call kind of crunchy left wing populism. So it's like as in crunchy as in granola. So it is the kind of hippie chemtrails. Did nine eleven? Did that? You know, is that you know, like all of that? You can you you can see the person that I'm describing, right? Yes, and absolutely. Jordan Peterson fitted a stern dad who tells you to take some responsibility for your life, and you can achieve stuff, but you've just got to kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That was the niche that he filled, and he did it really well. Like Twelve Rules for Life. It's got some wacky stuff in it, but it's like the lobsters being my primary thing. You know, some strange invocations of biology, but quite a lot of it's quite sweet there's a bit about you know one of the rules is like always pet a cat when you see one in the street which is just like what kind of monster could object to that you know never interrupt kids when they're skateboarding i i hadn't planned to but thank you um so you know that was there was there was a lot of that and i went to one of his live shows and there was a kind of hunger for people just to be told like i read i wrote a long piece in the atlantic about what whatever called whatever happened to jordan peterson and the first question that he was asked at the live show i think or second question was how do you get a baby to sleep so there was just he was just connecting with a very normie audience who was just like I'm very tired <laughs> I haven't had a full night's sleep now for eight months you know just tell me what to do tell me it's going to be okay having a sort of authority figure say that 
But I think the reason that he's so popular, there's a great Slate Star Codex blog about why it's edge cases that always go go viral. You know, it's never the sort of slam dunk bad thing that goes viral. It's always the kind of one that's arguable because people can argue two sides of it. And I was just mentioning it this morning to someone who asked me about why are people talking so much more about Prince Harry than Andrew Tate? And I said, so Andrew Tate, the former kickboxer, big brother contestant, now arrested in Romania on trafficking and rape charges. I said, in the liberal press, the mainstream media, people say, Andrew Tate, misogynist, been arrested, bad bloke. And and no one pops up really to go, ah, poor old Andrew Tate, though, has he been overly misrepresented? Whereas Prince Harry, half the people think he's speaking amazing truths about the press and, you know, um, the royal family. And half people think, what a traitor to our beloved queen, how could he ruin her final months? So because there's an argument there, there's an engine that means that there will be constant engagement and content. And that, I think, was the engine that happened to Jordan Peterson. Half the people who read the books saw one version of him, which was this kind of sort of stern dad. And then people who saw his online presence, which was much more combative, would say, you're getting him all wrong. But the book people would have their version of it and say, no, you're getting him all wrong. And that was the that was the polarisation that happened about him, which made him so popular, I think. So why are most gurus men? Yeah, I've been trying to work this one out. Um, and I've got various unscientific theories. And one of them is that either by uh, biological predisposition or by socialisation, men just... Okay, how's the, what's the... <laughs> I know you're not going to be offended by this, so I'm going to say it. Sort of like the sound of their own voices more. <laughs> I've got no idea what you're on about, say? Helen. And I often think this to myself <laughs> when I have my... <laughs> Moments alone. You know what I mean? Yeah, but like, so I'm, you know, when I've been doing um, interviews for the, um, for this around the series, it's like, how many men have got a podcast? God Almighty, is this something like? Is this something you get? You realize you're on now? a man's podcast right now. I know, I know. Some of my best friends are men with podcasts, but like, uh, but it's it's kind of extraordinary to me that you know, and and actually, the podcast economy is a huge part of that. What we're talking about, right? Because you can have it is a constantly circulating ecosystem where you. Not that you don't have to do any work, but like you can ask someone to be on your podcast for free, right? So you actually get much. If I asked, you know, Sam Harris to write me a two thousand word article, he's not going to do that. It's going to it's like a huge commitment to ask. But if you ask him to be on your podcast for an hour, you might potentially get him. So a lot of this does rely on a podcast economy. So it relies on people who are very verbally fluent and very happy to hold forth, perhaps sometimes on subjects with which they're not truly acquainted. And there's brilliant polling on this. Like, do you see that great polling that came out? Not only is there a great polling, that men are much more likely to report being able to like fight off a bear. You know, like they ask you what kind of size of animal you think you could take on in a fight. And there are men who genuinely think they could beat a wolf in hand-to-hand combat. (laughs) No, mate, you're going down. You could be, even a goose probably could cause you some serious troubles. These are petrifying animals. Right. Very scary. Very scary. I wouldn't, I wouldn't try and deck a goose. I mean, no. Not Maybe I'm an outlier then, because I, I wouldn't fancy my chances against... No, I mean, it's only about 10% of, of men, but nonetheless, it's 10% more men than could actually fight a goose. Yeah. Um, and then the same thing happens when they do surveys where they ask people what they think of a, a cabinet minister, and they give a name, and it's a fictional name. And I think it's something like a 15-point difference that men are like, doing a great job, doing a great job, because they won't say... I don't know. I, I don't, don't Because, again, that might be biological. That might be socialization, that it's more humiliating. They don't want to be, they don't want to lose face. That's more important to men. Um, we also know that, you know, there's research about the fact that in mixed sex schools, boys take up more of teachers' time. They're more likely to put their hand up. They're more likely to kind of hold the floor. Um, you know, I, some of this I don't have a great deal of insight to because I'm a woman who loves the sound of her own voice. So I'm, <laughs> I am a gender nonconformist in that sense. But it, it was very... 
noticeable to me. But also, if you accept the thesis that, to some extent, some of these people are filling a void left by traditional religion, then it wouldn't be surprised that all your authority figures are, are men. And also, they're really sweet gigs, a lot of them, right? So again, you wouldn't be surprised that, you know, there's a great research about the fact that if women enter a profession, it's it's prestige falls and it's wages fall. So like computer programmers is the classic example. Everyone talks about that. that actually, that happens in reverse. They used to be women and then they become, you know, or, or, like the way that chefs are very high status, but cooks are not, you know, the things we think of as, as female become low status. And so I think that that is part of it too. And the one place that you do see lots of female gurus is, is wellness, spirituality, yogury, because that's diet and exercise. That's kind of, you know, or like sort of, in a way, Mrs. Hinch is kind of a guru, you know, the sort of domestic guru, how to clean your taps and all that sort of stuff. That is, I think there's a thing that both that's a sort of safe domain for women to claim authority in. And also, does a guy want to be the king of clean taps? Like maybe there's just not a great competition. Whereas being the king of crypto or being the king of dating advice or being the, uh, you know, or any of that things are, are sort of more appealing, prestigious roles to take. But yeah, men men do hog prestigious roles, and lots of these are very well rewarded prestigious roles for all that they come with, lots of sort of psychological downsides, particularly. Okay, so this is completely unscientific and off the top of my head, but is the reason more gurus are men just a reflection of historic uh, sexism, and that in time the guru sphere will achieve gender parity? The girl sphere, yes. <laughs> Maybe. Is it also? something to do with absent fathers and that people are more likely to look for a father figure than a mother figure because do you know what? I don't think that's re- no I don't think that is ridiculous because for two reasons one is that people sort of kind of explicitly say that you know I asked David Fuller who is the subject of episode five who left his job at Channel 4 News because he was so excited by the um the work of Jordan Peterson you know and I said to him, do you see him as a kind of father figure? And he said, you know, I've, I've asked myself that, you know, and John P says we're not even transparent to what, completely to ourselves. It's not like he didn't think it was a kind of ridiculous or offensive question. And there was lots of that, I think, in the in the Peterson fandom. You would see quite sweet things in the Reddit Peterson forum that were like people posting, you know, here's my chart of the fact that I've got up every day and I've tidied my room and I've showered and like, you know, I'm, here's my life goals. There's quite a lot of that kind of slightly sweet, earnest young male sort of pathfinding that I think you find with a lot of the, the gurus, like kind of young men finding their way. So I think that's definitely part of it. And then also the fact is that so many of the things that I looked at were kind of undergirded by worries about masculinity. So the dating sphere is really interesting. I mentioned Andrew Tate earlier. We talked about a different guy called Tom Torero, but a lot of that was about kind of, you know, uh, you've got to kind of bang as many chicks as you can, you know, the, and, and women have got all this choice because of feminism, you know, they don't have to settle. So you've got to be a kind of alpha. There's a lot of that stuff ha- happens around the place. Um, and a lot of anxiety and tension about what, what men's role is, which kind of comes out either in sort of sweet self-improvement ways or comes out in quite hostile anti-feminist ways about women have all had it too easy. You know, you know, which you've seen things like the incel movement, for example, um, you know, this sort of resentment and entitlement. Um, so I think, yeah, I think there is something particularly about mas- <laughs> hashtag masculinity in crisis. But, you know, but that actually there is a lot of kind of men looking for men to take guidance from, um, you know, masculine authority figures and different versions of masculinity, right, which I think is really interesting. There is the kind of the liver king. I don't know if you're familiar with the liver king. No. Absolutely jacked. Absolutely jacked. And oh, is he the guy who was outside Buckingham Palace yeah. not long ago? I've lost your sound again, by the way. 
So we'll never know what you think about the liver king. Let me finish the thought and then we can we can wrap it up. It's fine. Um and you know, he he's 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 this kind of like as in Clive James's famous description of Schwarzenegger, like a condom filled with walnuts. So that's one idea. And then there's the sort of slightly more sensitive alpha kind of vibe, um, which you do see kind of a lot, which is and actually lots of kind of men who are quite lacrimose, which I find quite fascinating at the same time that they're sort of preaching this strongman aesthetic they themselves seem to be quite ooh ooh small beans um so i think there is a kind of yeah there is a there is a, a thread running through a lot of the series that is about kind of tension over masculinity helen I, I won't keep you any longer i've kept you far longer than i promised i would thank you so much for doing this uh, where can people find uh, your podcasts and your writing so you can find the new gurus on bbc sounds or wherever you find your podcasts you can find more of my writing at the atlantic and you can find the shell of my presence on Twitter as I am trying not to tweet anymore, but things keep annoying me. So that resolve has been constantly tested. But yeah, thank you very much, Matt, for having me. And will there be another series of gurus? I don't know if there'll be another series of gurus. It depends on the BBC. Hopefully there'll be a repeat for it in March on on radio and maybe um, a bonus episode if we can get to them but um i just need a long lie down in a darkened room <laughs> someone did say to me that you are basically taking on every kind of tight-knit anti-mainstream media community on the internet are you absolutely sure you want to do this and i thought I've, i'm ready i've been there before it's such a good series i really hope that it doesn't just get a second to it. it should just be one of those things that's on every week uh on bbc sounds thank you so much Well, there you go. Helen Lewis, not only should you read her fantastic writing for The Atlantic, but you have to listen to that Guru's podcast. It's just so addictive. It's absolutely brilliant. So that is uh, another podcast for you to get. You can listen to all the episodes of it before the next episode of this. Uh, and uh, yeah, on this podcast, by the way, do leave a five-star written review on uh, on iTunes or Apple Podcast, whatever it's called now, because it does help other people find it or whatever platform you listen to. Do share it far and wide. Tell your friends tell your family and don't forget to book tickets for the live shows early because those guests are incredible the 23rd of january emily maitlis and john sopel the 6th of february ian blackford 20th of february keir starmer 6th of march eddie izzard 20th of march krishnan guru murthy 3rd of april ruth davidson guests for later in the year and there are some treats to be announced, I can tell you now, uh, will be announced in due course. Tickets for all the shows through to July are available to buy on the link that I will put in the blurb. Thank you so much for downloading this. Happy New Year. Is, is it too late? I was too late. Well, it's too late to backtrack it now because I've said it. So uh, Happy New Year. I think this is possibly the latest Happy New Year that you'll you'll experience. Um, Happy New Year. I hope you're enjoying the start of the year. January is a terrible month, so hopefully um, this podcast has helped um, perk you up for for at least the last hour or so. And um, well, I'm, I'm just going on now for no reason. I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.